Welcome back. Living the Good Life Show. Got a great segment coming your way here, ladies and gentlemen, as we're going to be previewing one of the best, seriously, one of the best majors and venues ever, especially in the United States. The upcoming 2022 U.S. Open. Man, it's the Country Club, Brookline, Massachusetts. Looking forward to it, I think, second week in June. Pop, you there? Good morning. Yeah, happy Father's Day to you, AJ, on the 19th of June on your favorite major of the year. And on the line with this, uh, our new uh, newest best friend, Fred Waterman. Uh, I'm assuming, Fred, you're up in Massachusetts this morning. Yes, I am. And gentlemen, it's a well, pleasure to hear your voices. Thank you. Welcome to the show, Fred Waterman. We're going to talk a little bit about the history of uh, the Great Country Club and the U.S. Open and everything else on your mind this morning. A little preview. Great. Hey, Fred. Whatever you'd like to know. Fred, I, I, you know, kind of bring everyone up to speed. I mean, over the years, you know, anyone who's listening who's obviously a, a, a big fan of golf, um, you know, have followed – certainly the U.S. Open and the great venues over the years. But, you know, uh, the country club in Massachusetts there, Brookline, I mean, certainly has a lot of great history. And talk a little bit about it. Well, the start of the country club is pretty interesting because every country club you hear of in the United States and the world gets their name from us uh, (laughs) because our founder – was over in China in the 1860s and 1870s, and there was a social club in Shanghai for English-speaking traders, and the name of this club Hmm. was the Country Club, and he liked it. So he brought it back to Boston when he returned in his late 20s, and in 1882 started this club called the Country Club. And you didn't need to call it the Bookline Country Club because there was no other, as somebody pointed out to me. Adam and Eve didn't need to have a last name. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, other clubs wound up saying, hey, we like that. And so the idea of having a club that was somewhat in the country and had a lot of sports, uh, that's how it happened. We didn't even start off with golf either. It was a, a place for horse racing and for families to get together. What makes it kind of interesting is that back in the late 1800s, only very low people would be going to racetracks and boxing matches, and there weren't that many sports. So the whole idea of having a club where families could go and do sports together originated with uh, this fellow, J. Murray Forbes, in the 1880s. So uh, you broke around on they broke around on a on a golf course. Talk a little bit about that as much as you can. Like maybe who helped design it, and how many <clears throat> holes were first built? Nine. Um, no, uh, the stories quite spectacular in that there's a woman, there was a woman named Florence Boyt, B-O-I-T, and her family moved around Europe, and she learned how to play golf down in the southwest corner of France, a place called Poe, same place, a guy named Theodore Havemeyer, who founded the Newport Country Club, also learned how to play. And, you know, people have heard about the Havemeyer Trophy. Anyway, so two of the... um, five founding members of the USGA, those clubs have their roots in Poe, France. So Florence Boyd learns how to play. She comes to the Boston suburb of Wellesley, and that's in the spring of 1892. 
she teaches her uncle and some of his friends how to play golf. And she puts mm-hmm. little flower pots into the lawn of this estate in Wellesley. They learn how to play. They go, this is a great game. She goes back to <laughs> Europe. And three of the guys who she taught how to play, who are members of the country club, go to the club and say, this is something that people might really enjoy. So the club said, great, we'll spend $50 and you three guys design six holes. So these three guys who have never seen a true golf course wind up designing the first six holes that are on the country club property. And they're opened up uh, in the spring of 1893. The uh, story is that the uncle was given the right to uh, hit the first ball during an exhibition. And the oldest members, according to the club's 50th anniversary book, he supposedly got a hole in one and the members watching were disappointed. He didn't do it again on the next hole. (laughs) Pretty funny. It's a wonderful story. I hope it's true, but it's a great story. Well, so those three guys weren't Larry. Those three guys weren't Larry Moe and Curly Joe though. Right. No, not exactly. One of them, a guy named Lawrence Curtis, learns how to play golf, like I said, in 1892. And within five years, he becomes the head of the USGA. Yeah. Wow. So uh, the circumstances are that uh, gradually, just as automobiles started to replace horses out on the street and in fields, the uh, club started to have golf overtake horse racing and, and riding. And eventually, the horse racing stops in the 1930s. And by the 1930s, you've already had Francis Wiemet, the 20-year-old amateur who was a caddy at the country club. And at the age of 20, he's working in a sporting goods store downtown Boston. He walks across the street and plays in the playoff to beat Harry Varden and Ted Ray, who are the two great golfing stars of the day. And Francis Wiemet is responsible for the first great boom of golf in America because in 1913, there were 340,000 golfers in the United States. He wins. Ten years later, there are 2.1 million golfers. And a lot of it had to do, a lot of it had to do with Wiemet, his personality. He was just a very average person. He, his father was a gardener, and Francis was unassuming, a tremendously humble individual, even though he wound up winning two U.S. amateurs, which back then was considered a major. Uh, when we talk about Bobby Jones winning the Grand Slam in 1930, it's because he won the U.S. and British Opens and the U.S. and British Amateurs. So we met has the kind of personality that people could really get behind I had the good fortune to do an interview with Gene Sarazen, who I, I, he invented the sand wedge, and I wish he told me how to hit the sand wedge well out of a bunker. Yeah. But the, the story is that um, he told me about how when he was 11 years old in 1913, he is caddying, and he was then Eugenio Saracini. And... Francis Wiemet wins the U.S. Open. And Eugenio Saracini, who is the son of an immigrant, says, if he can do it, I can do it. And nine years later, 
He becomes Gene Sarazen. And as a 20-year-old, like Francis we met, the son of an immigrant, a former caddy, he wins the U.S. Open. And Gene Sarazen said he needed to have Francis Wiemann do it so that he believed he could do it. Good story. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yep. You know, uh, kind of fast-forwarding a little bit here, um, you know, let's talk a little bit about Brookline uh, and the country club there and the history with the U.S. Open um, and, and obviously just golf in general based on, you know, a lot of listeners are wondering, well, you know, how many times has it played? Um, you know, a majors played obviously at Brookline and some of the uh, success stories and just interesting uh, history of, you know, events that have been played there. This will be the 17th USGA event wow. that we've had. Yep. And the first one was uh, the Women's National Championship in 1902, won by a woman named Genevieve Hecker, who had only played golf for four years. And if you ever see a picture, she's um, a woman who has an absolutely uncompromising look in her eyes. One of those competitors that you're sure if you had a 10-inch putt, she'd just wait and watch you put it in the hole. There'd be no concessions of any kind. Mm -hmm. And she wrote, a good, she wrote a good book about how um, women playing golf, um, how it was different for them than men. And she took quite a few shots at male golfers, including, she said, she pointed out that uh, women had far better nerves on putts than men did. But, okay, that's interesting. But uh, the U.S. Open is played at the country club three times, 1913. And then because it was so important, they brought it back exactly 50 years later. And in that one, Julius Boros, defeats Arnold Palmer and a Texan, 25 years old, pro for three years, named Jackie Cupid. He was one of five brothers who were all golf professionals. And Jackie Cupid had a two-shot lead on the next to last hole, the 71st hole, and he didn't know it. And because he didn't know it, he was still trying to get the best score he could on every hole. He took a double bogey on 17 so he falls back to the same score as boris and palmer and then on 18 he does know how the match stands though the competition and hits his second shot to 15 feet he sinks the putt he's the u.s open champion he rolls the putt across the green and at the last minute it just goes off the left edge of the hole and he never won a U.S. Open. He never won a major. Mm. And it was mm. just in one inch. That was the difference. The third U.S. Open was also a playoff. So all three Opens at the Country Club being playoffs. The third one was Nick Faldo against Curtis Strange. And Curtis Strange, as you probably remember, had blown a five-shot lead on the last nine of the Masters. And Curtis Strange said, I just choked. And he was very straightforward about how his nerves hadn't held up at the Masters. So he comes to Brookline, and he's trying to prove that he can handle it. And he is playing with Faldo, 72nd hole, and Faldo hits first, 
he's on the edge of the green. He's going to get his par. And the, the men are tied. And Strange is just off the fairway. And he's in the first cut, and he doesn't know if he has a flyer lie or not. And so I asked him about it uh, a couple years ago because I needed to get it right for the club's history. And he said the situation was if he had a flyer lie and he hits a six iron, he's going to be over the green. And the way the green is tilted so much from back to front, he said, if, I, if I'm over the green, I'm dead. I'm not going to get up and down. He said, if it's not a flyer lie, the six iron's on the green. If I hit a seven iron, a flyer lie puts me on the green, but a seven iron with a regular is going to put me in the bunker, and I should be able to get up and down. He hits the seven iron. He's in the bunker. He then hits the bunker shot to 14 inches, sinks the putt. He's in the playoff. He soundly beats Faldo, and he shows the world that he can handle the pressure of winning a major, and the following year, he wins the U.S. Open again. There you go. Love hmm. it. Wow. Great history. Absolutely wonderful stuff. It's what uh, what it's all about, which is why we uh, love it so much. Fred, uh, appreciate all that you do, and certainly uh, with the history of golf right there, especially at the Country Club. Appreciate you spending some time with us and uh, just kind of going over a little bit of this greatness. So appreciate everything, and uh, let's stay in yeah. touch. Yeah, if you're not too busy, Fred, Fred, if you're not too busy on uh, Father's Day, maybe you can give us a phone call for five to ten minutes and give us an update on the week itself. I would be glad to do so, and I want to know which one of you has already put money down on Colin Morikawa. That <laughs> could be a good one. That could be a good one. I don't know. I see. I'm leading you towards the. So. Uh, I'm leaning towards the Masters champion. Not a bad choice. Um, you've got the big Francis Weeman said that the course takes a lot of knowing. Yeah. And an intriguing thing for this course versus most major courses is how often you don't want to hit driver. And don't be surprised if on Sunday the winner winds up hitting only six or seven or eight drivers. Out of the 18 holes. Okay. Interesting perspective. I like it's, that. Uh, I like that a lot, actually. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, there's a saying that the best courses find the best player. Yeah. And the country club has consistently come up with true champions. I mean, Julius Boris won three majors, like I was saying about Curtis Strange and Francis Weeman. Um, it's intriguing that. You're going to see people standing on the tee box trying to decide how to play a hole, and the person they're playing with might, or the other people, might wind up having completely different strategies. And all three or two could be correct in what their choices are, yep. even though they're different. That's why we love this game. I'm telling you. That's why we love it. <laughs> Thanks again, Fred. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you, gentlemen. There you go. There you go. Fred Waterman, the historian right there at the Country Club, Brookline, Massachusetts. More to come.